0: All right, there was a movie a couple years ago called Parasite. Have y'all seen this? We got that image there? Yeah, oh, wonderful, yeah. Parasite, fantastic movie. Uh, Not a family movie, Um, but it was the first Korean movie to be nominated for an Academy Award, and it actually won four awards that year uh, for one of them being Best Picture. Uh, And so Parasite is, as you may think about this, is an organism... Or a person who lives and feeds off another. And there is no mutual beneficial part to that relationship. The parasite sucks the life out of the other without adding any value to the host. The movie Parasite is a story about one family, the Kims, who uh, feed off the parks uh, like a parasite. And the Kims are a poor family, and the, the Parks are a very rich family. The Kims seem rather normal, uh, mother, father, two kids. It's just they don't have that much money. And over time, uh, they, they, they lie, they cheat, and they swindle their way into the Parks' life and ultimately into their homes and almost fully take over, like a parasite would, into this family. And ultimately, the movie is a social commentary uh, and satire on the gap between the wealthy and the poor in Korea, and that could be applied to the wealthy and poor in any country, including ours. Now, I won't spoil the ending of the movie for you. Um, For those of you who have not yet seen it and may go see it, but like most movies, uh, most good ones, it ends with with a good twist, uh, which is absolutely consistent with the theme of the movie, um, and it, it actually I think transforms what the movie was where you in the genre that you may have thought it was as you're watching it from a comedy uh, or a satire or a drama to a horror film. So maybe I did ruin it. Uh, <laughs> and if you think about it, perhaps that is the only genre suitable to adequately capture the obscene gap between the rich and the poor in today's world. It's horror. And so today we're going to be talking about parasites. Easter went quick for you, didn't didn't it, Slim? (laughs) Wonderful. Yes, we are. We are talking about parasites Because as beautiful and joyful as last week's Easter theme was in our story today, things are about to get real. Jesus is about to go into a time where things are going to get really, really bad in the Gospel of John. And so, no, we're not talking about parasites like tapeworms or anything gross like that. It's worse. Today we're going to talk about the takers, the matchers, and the givers. Uh, There's an Adam Grant quote that says this, that people tend to have one of three styles of interaction. There are takers who are always trying to serve themselves, matchers who are always trying to get equal benefit for themselves and others, and givers who are always trying to help people. So that's where we're going today. Takers, matchers, givers. Which one are you? Which one do you feel like you might be if just a Broad stroke of this. Taker, matcher, or a giver. Our text today actually has all three in it. And so let's look at it. The takers. Uh, if you remember from last week, Lazarus was raised from the dead. And that, uh, as Malcolm preached on Easter Sunday, that Lazarus was raised from the dead. And you would think the town would, would be on fire. Like, what? Resurrection in our midst? Like, you would think everyone would be go- coming to faith. There would be this, this stir and this buzz. You might yourself be asking the questions that they might be asking, like, I want to ask Lazarus a lot of questions, like, was death painful? Did you see a great light? Like, what happens at that moment? Where was Lazarus in that time when he was really dead, when he was dead dead? And John gives us none of it. John doesn't give us any clue of what happened to Lazarus. I'm sure they asked Lazarus those questions, But John doesn't answer any of that. What John does in verse 45, he says, therefore many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary had seen what Jesus did, believed in him, which seems like the normal response to hearing about a resurrection, right? Like, oh, you have power over the death. Okay, I'll do whatever you say. If you know someone has power over death, you respond in that way. You believe in them. You respond to them in that way. And then, Here's what verse 46 says, because it goes on. But, and you know that's a bad sign when someone yeah buts the resurrection. <laughs> they raised from the dead. Yeah, but. And yeah. <laughs> that's a bad sign, but this is what happens here. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Huh. Snitches are going to get stitches. Then the chief priest and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. Let's have a meeting. <laughs> the dead are raised. Let's, let's have a meeting to discuss this. Uh, <laughs> people are coming to faith. The dead are raised. Let's discuss this a little further. And it just, it, it grinds my bones <laughs> to hear of, of, of the way this response is here. But let, let's give them a chance. Maybe this meeting is to celebrate this huge victory of life over death. Verse 47 Goes on says, what are we accomplishing? They asked, here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Oh, there it is. There's their real motivation being revealed right there. The religious leaders are worried about losing their position. Their status. Everyone will believe him. Is it true or not? Is the question we need to find out. Is that true or not? Everyone will believe him. It doesn't matter. Like, that's, that's important. They're like, I don't care if it's true. What that means for us is that the Romans will come and they will take away our temple and our nation. And do you hear how gross that sounds? There's nothing more putrid than religious pride our temple, like our moneymaker. You hear what they are concerned about right here. They are so concerned and they're so self-obsessed and absorbed that they're saying, what does this do to us? I don't care whether it's true or not. What does it do to us? Now, some may want to say, let's polish this up a little bit and say it's not as bad as it sounds. They're really concerned about what the temple means for the people. It's how to serve the people. Okay, maybe so but let's find out what their true intentions are. Verse 53, so from that day on, they plotted to take Jesus's life. There's really no sugarcoating this. Jesus is a threat. Jesus is a threat. Yeah, it's hard to get around that. You can say, well, is there a way to get around that? What do they do with Lazarus? Lazarus has just been raised from the dead. He is living and breathing, walking proof of the power of Jesus's resurrection what are we going to do with him? If you jump to chapter 12 verse 10, so the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. <laughs> Imagine you're Lazarus. Like, <laughs> again? <laughs> I just died. <laughs> like that would just be wild. Like I already did it. Like life death, life death, life death. Like do you know how many deaths can, what that would do to a person? <laughs> like, ah, ah, it, would, it would kill you, right? So, <laughs> it would just be wild for him to be thinking, you're going to kill me, and I've been raised from the dead. Like, that is just wild. But this is what takers do. These, are, these religious leaders are takers, and takers say, if you're in my way, you got to go. If you are in my way, I'm going to stampede you. Because the religious leaders are parasites. They are feeding off the people. They are feeding off one another. And Jesus is a threat to their kingdom and they are going to stampede him. That's what takers do. Takers take. Very simple understanding there. Takers take. They consume, they digest, they feed, they they build, they add, they never stop, they always go. This is, what, this is the predatory lending practices. This is greedy CEOs who, who want profit at whatever cost. This is the sharks who swim through East Waco looking to buy property cheap and sell it for high, no matter what it does to the taxes of the people living there. A taker sees a relationship solely in a cost-benefit analysis. Does this person help me? Does this person add something to me? Do they help me advance and climb the social ladder? Introduce me to important people, and if not, rinse and move on. Takers only see you for what you can do for them. When takers win, someone usually loses. Takers see themselves like like athletes, and it's athletes must win. In an athletic sport, that makes sense you have to win. It's a competitive advantage that you need to have over someone and that's the mentality of sport. But when you take that same mentality into your relationships that I have to win and you have to lose, that's when we start having the destructive effects of the fall start breaking into our relationships. That I have to win in this relationship. I have to to, to beat you. That we both can't win. That's what takers do. And these takers set out to take Jesus' life. And so takers are clearly the bad guys in the story. It's obvious that these are the bad guys in the story. No one wants to be a taker. No one sets out in life and says, I'll be a taker. I'll be self absorbed, self obsessed. No one wants to do that. But that's what takers do they take. And if takers take, matchers, if we go into that, matchers match. Matchers want everything to be fair everything to be equal. They're concerned with it to be fair. And so there is a kill order out on Jesus's life. And in verse 54, it says, therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. And so Jesus knew that his time was coming to an end. He knew he had about a week left, but it was not yet the time. And so he, he went, he went covert. He went into a little bit of hiding here. And we find Jesus, and, and that's where we find Jesus in chapter 12, where he goes into, a, into this hiding at this party of Lazarus. It's a small party here, and so just to, to paint the scene of this party here, you have this party, people are eating and drinking and talking, you can, you can hear the sounds, you can hear the, you can smell what good food might have been there at this great party, and who's there? You have the disciples, you have Jesus. You have the, the guest of honor, and Lazarus is at this party. That's what they're celebrating, what Jesus did with for Lazarus. That's where they asked him those questions about, you know, is there a great white light and things like this, right? And then who else is at this party? Mary. Mary is at this party. And when we come to this, this passage here, and we see what, what, what's happening at, at this scene here, this is a part where I've always asked the question, what's Mary doing here? She seems out of place in this, in this scene here, and, and one of my biggest questions as to what's the, what's the role of women in church leadership comes around this question here, and this is something we're going we're to explore further next week, so tune in for that, sneak peek, um, but why did Jesus only have 12 male disciples? That was one of the ones that, I, that was a stumbling block for me to understand why what is the role of women in church leadership? It was an enigma to me. Why did Jesus only have 12 male disciples? But if you look at a similar passage here in Luke 10 39, we see that Mary, we, see, we find Martha hurrying about, scurrying, and serving, and contrasted to her sister Mary, and it says she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he said. Now, that phrase right there, sitting at the Lord's feet, sometimes we can think of that as like Mary being like, tell me more, Jesus, (laughs) just like sitting at his feet in that regard. You're like, maybe. However, let's let's look at the rest of Scripture and history of what that means. And that that phrase, that idiom of sitting at the Lord's feet is actually an understanding of someone to be a disciple of someone. So Mary is sitting at at, at Jesus' feet as a disciple. You can look at at Paul in Acts 22 where he described himself as one who learned at the feet of Gamaliel. It was an idiom of learning from a rabbi. And so when Mary was described as sitting at Jesus' feet, she was described as being a disciple, as a follower, as a learner, as a leader. So this is big news for us. Clearly, Jesus welcomed her as such and said, Come, sit at the feet, learn from me as a disciple. I'll be your rabbi, and I will teach you. Again, more about that next week. But for our time today, Mary does the unthinkable. Verse 3, then Mary took about a, pure pi- about a pint of pure nard. That's how you have to pronounce it. <laughs> it doesn't sound too, uh, too great when you pronounce it that way. It sounds like Axe Body Spray. Got the, got the nard. Uh, <laughs> you're like, oh gosh, stop. <laughs> That's not what it was. It is an expensive perfume that we learn is about a year's wages worth. Now, if you, if you look at, at the recent census for Waco, uh, the, the average household income, household income in Waco is about $40,000. So, let's, let's just say that, that she pours about $40,000 worth of perfume on Jesus. That's a lot. That's a very expensive perfume, one. I've never seen such a perfume. Maybe some of you all have. But... Pours this perfume on Jesus and says the, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. It was filled with with what the act of what she just did. And and for the matcher, for the matcher, for the person who thinks things need to be done balanced and, and fairly, would say this doesn't measure up. They would say the scales aren't weighted evenly, that this is, is a waste. And so in comes Judas, verse 4. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected, why wasn't this perfume sold and money given to the poor? Like, do you know what we could have done with all of this money? How many Playstations we could have gotten? It's got to be fair. Like, this just is so much. It's got to be fair. It's, and what she does is extravagant. It's over the top. It's almost wasteful. It's almost reckless. But John tells us a little insight into what Judas was doing there. Judas isn't really concerned about the poor. Judas was, book, was the, bookkeeping, uh, the bookkeeper for the disciples, and so he was the one who was holding the money bags. So when people would, would donate to Jesus' ministry, he would be the one in charge of the money. And Judas, with the money, we learned that he was actually stealing from the offering plate. Which is just a, a, a dark foreshadow of what Judas would ultimately do in selling Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, right? That he would be stealing from the money plate. And so this is what Judas is actually concerned about. Not giving the money to the poor. It's, that, that's mine. You're, you're wasting all that? That could, have been, that could have been in my pocket. And so this is why I'm actually more concerned about matchers than I am takers. Takers, it's evident. You can see what they're up to. Matchers are just duplicitous takers. Matchers are devious takers. They may be so good at lying that they've deceived themselves. That they've, they've said, oh, I'm a good person. This is for the poor, when in reality it's actually for themselves. Everything I do is for others. Is it? Is that true? Can you do a good deed and not take a selfie doing it? Stung for some of y'all. <laughs> Me too. You see, there's this old doctrine called incurvatus in se. Uh, it's a theological phrase describing a life bent inward. A life turned inward on oneself rather than outward on God. And, and Martin Luther wrote a lot on this, this doctrine here. And he tells us that the human heart is so curved inward that it, it, it uses not only physical but even spiritual goods For its own purposes. It's not just making financial investments in the world, it's also making spiritual investments in the world so that it would come back upon oneself. Because our hearts are curved inward, seeking only ourselves. And what Luther is trying to say here is that our best efforts, our best efforts to get beyond ourselves, to love others, to serve others, and the best of our ability, that human beings find it almost impossible to escape the gravity well. Of self-interest, that we have this gravity well that is pulling everything back to ourselves to say, "Let's make it about me." Even in the best intentions and the best efforts, it was to come back to me, and that was true for Judas, and that's true for Christians trying to serve and to be seen serving. Some of y'all have seen this true on mission trips. We know we we see this. We see this in our own lives. I mean, you can think about it this way. The the parent whose desire for their children to to flourish and to to succeed discovers later in life that they're really trying to recorrect some of the problems that they had growing up. And they're trying to to relive through it there. So is it really for the child or is it for themselves? Or you may think of the the person who sees themselves as a a loving, dutiful family member, and then they hear of, of someone in their family passing and their first thought is, what do I get in the will? It was for them, everything I did for them, but what did I, what did I get? I should have gotten something for all my efforts for them. And so we, what we are trying to see, what we, we actually see right here, and what Luther is trying to argue, is that our hearts are so curved inward that even our good deeds have a parasite lurking behind them. That there is this parasite lurking behind them trying to claim something for themselves. And if we're not careful, we'll believe it and we'll trick ourselves into believing, I'm a good person. I'm a great person. You see what I did? You see what all I've done for people? You see how much I've given? And so Judas, selfishly, but also self-righteously, those two aren't too different, says we got to give it to the poor. And what does Jesus say in verse 7? Leave her alone, <laughs> Ah, Jesus, thank you. <laughs> ah, it's just so beautiful for Jesus standing up, speaking, showing dignity to, to Mary. Here, leave her alone. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Now, that phrase has been abused a lot throughout the, <laughs> the history of the church. Many times, the interpretation of that verse there, you will always have the poor among you, you will not always have me, means you really don't need to care for the poor. They're going to be here all the time. Like, move on. (laughs) It's okay. You can look past them. It's fine to ignore them. But what Jesus is doing is he's quoting Deuteronomy 15.11, which says, there will always be poor in the land, therefore, there will always be poor in the land, Here's the point. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. It's almost the opposite of what our normal interpretation is. I will, there, there will never cease to be poor in the land, therefore open up your hands and be generous. It's, it's almost the exact opposite. It, it's just funny how much we want to, to bend scriptures to mean what we want them to mean. And what Jesus is saying is, I'm going to be here for like a week. It's okay for her to pour out her generosity. And it's okay for you to be generous with the poor after that. Both things can be true. You you can give give to Jesus and you can give to the poor. Both things can be true here. But But that doesn't make sense to takers and matchers. That line of thinking doesn't make sense to takers and matchers. It only makes sense to givers. And givers are the last group that we want to talk about. Mary gave something so valuable, right? A week's or a year's worth of wages to Jesus in this one moment. Why? Because she saw something far more valuable was with her in that moment than anything that she had with her. That she found something far more precious and valuable was standing in her presence than this, this bottle of perfume. Her priorities were changed with Jesus. And you can see the, this, this disciple's adoration and affection for Jesus in her generosity in the way that she applies the perfume. Look at verse 3 again. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. Other passages talk about how she pours it on her head. It's so much perfume. It's, it's covering the head to toe. And But the way she applies it with her hair, you see the affection and the adoration Mary has for her Savior? Like Mary serves as this, this, this foil, this stark contrast between, between the parasitic religious leaders and the self-seeking duplicitous Judas. And right in the middle is Mary. Mary is this picture of generosity. And her care and love for her Savior. And so these givers are a rare breed. Givers are a rare breed who contribute to others without expecting anything in return. Uh, Samuel Johnson famously wrote, The true measure of a man is how he treats someone who can do him absolutely no good. Ooh. The true measure of man is is how he treats someone who can do him absolutely no good. And so how we treat the lowest on the totem pole says a lot about who we are. Givers aren't looking at what they give as a way to come back to them. They're not asking how much does it cost, how much is going to affect me. They are truly 100% other-focused And some of us are like, yeah, that would be nice, but I'm just not built that way. My personality doesn't think like that. It's okay, Jesus doesn't make it optional. Luke 6 tells us. (laughs) Luke 6, Jesus says, but love your enemies, do good, lend, expecting nothing in return. Expect nothing in return. (laughs) Do we believe what Jesus is saying? Is Jesus actually serious about some of these commands? Like, that's just wild. There's not an ounce of self-interest in here. It is completely other-focused. And the beautiful part of this whole thing is, when we become givers, even though it's completely other-focused, we actually come alive as well. And so once we actually start focusing on others and take our eyes off ourselves and look at others, we actually come alive. There's an author, Marlo Thomas, and he writes, my father said there were two kinds of people in the world, givers and takers, align with what we're talking today, the takers may eat better, but the givers sleep better. I like that. The takers may eat better, but the givers sleep better. And what does he mean by that? Well, how bad do you feel when maybe at the end of the week, you have to throw some of your groceries away? You're like, oh, gosh, I wasted this banana. <laughs> this whole, whole bunch, what do you call it? a bunch? Of, a bunch of bananas? Thank you. A flock of bananas. I wasted my (laughs) flock of bananas. (laughs) And you have to throw it away. And some of you are like, just make banana bread. I don't know. Maybe sometimes I will. But (laughs) how bad do you feel when you buy your groceries and they they, they go to waste and you just throw it away and you're like, this, this isn't right. I should have done things differently. (laughs) But the flip side of that is how good do you feel when you actually use your money to buy someone food that needs it? There's, like, there's, a, there's something changing there. like the, the, the stark contrast of how bad you feel throwing food away to the stark contrast of how great you feel when you actually are giving food away. There's like a, a, something flips inside of our hearts because we're meant to be that way. Like we are, we are meant to come that way. Generosity. It's just more fun. You agree? Like generosity is just more fun. It's more life-giving. I mean Eve was, was the mother, the mother of all life. And Mary is channeling that right here, in the, in the midst of, a, of these life takers, Mary is this life giver. And some of y'all are thinking, I don't know, uh, Slim, do you know my student loans? Like, I, 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 can't, I can't do that. I mean, do you know mean mouths I've got to feed? Do you know my living situation? And that is the great lie that we all believe. We all believe that I'll be generous when dot, dot. We like, all have this secret plane in our heads that If I can get to that point, then I will be a generous human being. But <laughs> I want us to see this, that, that generosity, it's, yes, we, we can talk about giving money, but it's, it's, it's a character quality. Like to be a generous person is a character quality. The generous person holds the door for someone else. The generous person sees you when you spill your coffee and goes and gets some paper towels. The generous person is the person who sees you when you drop your bag at HEB and says, Let me help you pick up your groceries. These are things you can do whether you have money or not. This is a character quality to be generous. And in fact, if you don't begin generosity with no money, the scriptures are not too optimistic about you becoming generous when you do get money. It's actually the opposite. That the, the rich tend to hoard their wealth. And so we have to begin at some point. we got to begin now. And you can do all that with no money. And this is just completely countercultural in a very consumeristic society. In, in a society that, is, that is, is built on an economic culture, that's built on self-interest, generosity just sounds radical. It sounds ludicrous. And in fact, when we are generous with someone, it tends to hurt at first. It's, generosity is like this muscle that if we don't use, it tends to hurt the first time. Jake and I went, didn't tell you I was using this illustration. Jake and I went to, uh, to work out last week, it was, or two weeks ago. And I did squats for the first time in maybe five years. Um, <laughs> it's been a while. <laughs> Whenever you work out and you, 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 do a, you use a muscle you haven't used in a long time, it tends to hurt. And so <laughs> we did squats. And I would say the next three days I was walking like this. Like... <laughs> I was like, look at the stairs to to go to my bedroom, like, (sighs) gosh, (laughs) like even sitting down, I was just like, I'm going to go like that. (laughs) It's it's painful. It's painful when you use muscles you haven't used before. And I think generosity is like that. When we haven't used it, it's so painful for us to even think about about becoming that person. And so, yes, I I believe that the the Bible tells us to to tie the 10th of what we have as a baseline. But as if you have not become there, I'd say go with 2%. That's going to be painful at first. But then we get to 10% as quick as we can and become this, this, have this rhythm of generosity. And I, as we said before, I think we start to see how much more fun generosity is than consumption. Like, it's just more fun. It's more fun than to see, like, what did we spend on fast food this week? Oh, Oh, can we hide that <laughs> evidence? Like you look at that and you go, that's terrible. That's consumption. Versus you go, hey, we just spent this money on our brothers and sisters in crisis. I'll happily give that anytime, all the time. Like that's, that's where we go, generosity becomes more fun. It becomes contagious. You want to be a part of that. And so we actually come alive when we give. Because when we, when we give, we are now imitating our creator who created us that we are made in the Imago Dei. And when we give, we're imitating the great giver of all life. And when we say, is this tree alive? If you look at a tree, is it alive? Well, does it produce fruit? Does it give fruit? To give is evidence of life. It's evidence of what God is doing in you. And so to give is to live. To give is to live. It's to, to come alive. It's to give with our time, with our patience, with our hospitality, Yes, with our money, but it's all areas of life. And so how can we become generous? Like Mary, you have to have an interaction with Jesus. You have to have a meeting and an encounter with Jesus. Like, do we realize that the only... Do we realize that the, the only way for Jesus to interrupt Lazarus's funeral was for Jesus to cause his own funeral? That when Jesus knew that I'm going to perform this miracle, that the rest of the world will see and they will kill me for it. That I'm going to do it knowingly. That I'm going, to, I'm going to raise into life and that means it's going to take my life. Jesus knew that. Going into it, Jesus was willing. We have a Savior who's willing to give his life to raise Lazarus's life. And that's what he says for us, that we have a Savior who's willing to give his life for your life. That he's willing to, to give his life, to spend it fully, to bring us back to life. I mean, do we see how extravagant, and maybe some might say wasteful that is? Like, that is, that is an extravagant grace of our, our Lord and Savior. So the, the high priest of the time, Caiaphas, was right. To end the people's suffering... He would have to die. And in that one act on the cross, Jesus becomes both the giver and the taker. He gives his life for yours and mine, and he gives it away freely, but then he takes. Scripture says that he takes our place. And he takes our sin. And so in that one act, Jesus becomes a taker in that essence. That Jesus takes your sin. He takes all of our rebellion, all of our doubt, all of our stupid, selfish interests, and he takes, and he takes, and he takes, in contrast to the way we take. But his taking taking is generous. And he takes our sin, and he stuffs it inside of his hands, and he stuffs it in his feet, he stuffs it in his body, so that he becomes the greatest sinner the world's ever known, and he dies on the cross. He takes our sin and he dies on the cross. And then that one act, he is both the taker and he's now the giver. And he comes to, and then he gives us life. It is a beautiful thing that when we look at what Jesus has done, that should change us. Last week was Easter, yes, but we are living in what's called the Easter tide. The days after Jesus' resurrection, between now and the ascension, is this, this day to, to celebrate the joy of what Jesus has done, that He has risen and He has risen indeed. That we can celebrate what he's done and that that tide, that that wave, the implications of this resurrection should flow into every part of our lives. It should change us right here. That when you see what Jesus has done, that he ultimately gives his life and takes my sin, then you are now invited into a new kingdom. With a new king and as citizens of that new kingdom, it should radically shift the way we think about all that we have and about every aspect of our life. When I see that my creator, that my Lord, that my savior has died for me, when I'm really honest, but I'm, not a, I'm actually not a matcher, I'm a taker. That he did that for me, for, for the least of these. That he did that for me. And that just changes us radically. Like when you meet someone that generous, it makes you want to be generous as well. When you meet someone who, is, who cares for you that deeply in the face of our selfishness, it makes you want to, be a, you, to follow in their steps. And so come alive today with the generosity because of what Jesus has done for you. See what he's done, have an encounter with Jesus, and come alive in generosity. Let's pray.